everyone. It's uh, Indiana Jones here. No, actually, Daniel Elwood and uh, Robert Paul Johnson is my co-host. And we are The Last Nighters. You can find us at lastnighters.com and also on the Liberty Movement's YouTube channel. And of course, I'm wearing the hat in honor of the movie choice tonight. It is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can find the show notes and more for this one at lastnighters.com slash 185. And we have a hell of a guest for you tonight. Uh, this was a Steven Spielberg movie, and, and he's been on for Steven Spielberg Spielberg movie last year uh, with Saving Private Ryan. It is, of course, Prof. CJ of the Dangerous History Podcast. And uh, welcome back to the show. Where can people find what you do there, CJ? And uh, uh, why don't you just give them a little bit about you know what you do over there? Okay, yeah. If you just type in DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, that'll take you to my homepage or just search for the Dangerous History Podcast wherever you like to consume your podcasts. I cover the history that the establishment would rather you not know about. So lots of topics, mostly American history, sometimes other stuff too, though. Currently, I'm up to my eyeballs in a giant series about Woodrow Wilson. I'm on episode eight of that series, and it I'm only at the end of his first year in the White House. So there you go. If you thought you hated Woodrow Wilson before, check this series out. You'll find out there's like a thousand more reasons to hate him than what you thought. All right. And he was in office for <laughs> quite a few more years after that, too. So you got your yeah, work seven out more you. to go, seven more to go. And the worst is still to come. We still have a few years to get to World War One and all that. So, yeah, we got that to look forward to. All right. Well, I'm going to make the argument that uh, this movie doesn't happen without that guy. Yeah, no, I'd agree. All right. So there it is. Fan fiction theory. Woodrow Wilson responsible for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones uh, and Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the uh, if the Allies didn't put such a punitive treaty on Germany at the end of World War One, it's extremely unlikely that the Nazis would have ever become a major political force in Germany and taken over. And it's also, you know, maybe not impossible, but it's much less likely that World War Two would have happened at least when and how it did anyway. So, yeah, that's that's the short version, which I'm sure is also what you were thinking. Right. And you'll probably get to that in episode like 15 or 16 or 27. 20. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Well, we will have links to your uh, podcast and uh, your previous appearance, which was lastnighters.com slash 127 for Saving Private Ryan. And this one is lastnighters.com slash 185. And uh, Robert, how we usually kick this off is with the Google description. But before we do that, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask for your sound effects, please. Get ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. You do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Boom. That's right. We're talking about Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is the first film in this series. Uh, some would argue that there are actually only three films currently existing in the series, but they unfortunately did make a fourth one called uh, Crystal Skull. <laughs> and we're on a are, fifth. They are working on a fifth, but they are on a hiatus because old man Ford has injured his shoulder requiring, requiring surgery. And uh, uh, we don't know when that is going to resume and, and be completed. But... Here we go with the uh, Google description here. I'm bringing this main screen. Uh, this came out uh, 40 years ago. So that's another reason why this is uh, on the docket tonight. So Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Got 8.4 out of 10 on IMDb, 95% Rotten Tomatoes, 85% Metacritic, and 92% of Google users like it. The description reads, Epic tale in which an intrepid archaeologist tries to beat a band of Nazis to a unique religious relic, which is central to their plans for world domination. Mwahaha. Battling against a snake phobia and a vengeful ex-girlfriend, Indiana Jones, is in constant peril. 
making hair's, hair's breath escapes at every turn in this celebration of the innocent adventure movies of an earlier era. Uh, oddly enough, this uh, movie <laughs> brought to you by Capitalism was released in the Soviet Union on June 15, 1981, directed by Steven Spielberg with a story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman, produced by Frank Marshall. Had a budget of $20 million and made a 20-bagger, nearly $400 million at the box office. And we'll go to Robert for your opening, please. Fantastic, Daniel. Yes, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, classic series, the entire Indiana Jones series. Crystal Skull is a big flaming pile. I can't imagine what they're going to do with this next one. I'm sure they're going to have some young, new guy. People talk about Chris Pratt being able to do it, and I tend to agree he could probably fill those shoes for the most part but i think harrison ford brought to the role of the like he's a very destructible hero he's always hurting himself he he's kind of the jackie chan of action stars jackie chan would punch a guy and then he'd like hurt his hand and he'd or he'd kick his something and then he'd, you know his, his foot would hurt you know he's not like really good and same with Indiana jones i mean yeah he'll punch a guy and he'll be okay but then he'll get hurt stabbed shot not exactly like life-threatening stuff but you feel like he's older than he looks because of all the crazy situations he puts himself in it's a lot of fun uh steven spielberg famously was a big fan of the old like flash gordon serials he wanted to bring that energy to the big screen uh the favorite thing i have about this film is its plot it does feature as you guys were talking about earlier the nazis and hitler's fascination with the occult specifically like the christian occult which has been mined by numerous pop culture properties the main one that springs to my mind because i'm also a big fan of it is mike Mignola, mignola's hellboy series which features nazis summoning demons and looking for other paranormal things but in this one uh you know he's searching for the the lost ark of the covenant he's searching for you know the the, the ark that holds the the two stone tablets of the 10 commandments as god handed down to to moses uh it's interesting that that you know i don't know if there was a time period in the movie like at a specific year given, but we get the impression that it's either pre-war or maybe in the middle of World War II. I get the impression that it's pre-war, but yeah, I is. could be wrong. Okay, it is for sure. Yeah, 1936. I think it actually says that in the in the very opening like caption. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Well, then that screws over one of my theories, but still, <laughs> but still, it'll be fine um, because. He did. He was famously uh, into the occult, and Christians have a, a large number of holy relics, such as. And I did a little Google search. So uh, the Spear of Destiny is one of them that's been mined for all kinds of different uh, pop culture things. The the spear that pierced Jesus' side, the the scourging pillars of Saints Peter and Paul, the head of Saint John the Baptist, the beheading column of Saint Paul, the Shroud of Turin. Jesus's crown of thorns, these kinds of things all, you know, if you believe that they hold some kind of power, um, the, the spear of destiny is said that anybody who wields it is a, is a, what, a, a, an army that could not be defeated. I think in this movie, it's the lost Ark. 
that they talk about how it has amazing power if you open it. And of course, at the end of the movie, it's like obliterating people. I don't know why. If you close your eyes, you're okay. It seems to render that as a weapon pretty ineffective. I'm sure people would figure it out real quick. And you just wear sunglasses and then you could just go mow people down. I don't know. But it's a really fun action film. Uh, you don't take it too seriously because he is. There's a few points in the movie where he's like teleporting a little bit like he's on top of a U-boat and the U-boat goes like a thousand miles. And you're like, <laughs> is he just outside on top of the U-boat this whole time for like weeks? How is he alive? And then he shows up at this port and then all of a sudden he teleports onto the, yeah, in a hidden little hidey spot. Anyway, it's all, you know, not supposed to take it too seriously, but overall it's, it's a, it's a fun semi, you know, alternate history world that, Indiana lives in. Um, I, I definitely want to get your guys' opinions on his career, like what he does in his spare time. Like, is it a, a moral activity? Is it immoral? Who really owns these relics? Is he doing the world a favor? Is he robbing anybody? Because, you know, states mm -hmm. usually claim ownership over these things, right? If, like, Egypt says, you know, we own all the Egyptian relics, and if you take them away, you know, you're stealing from Egypt or whatever, and Anyway, uh, we can talk about that. But overall, I mean, who doesn't love Indiana Jones? Uh, it's a fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, it's worth a watch. Almost probably indefinitely. It's so good. Anyway, yeah, that's my basic opening take. Yeah, and it, it still holds up uh, really well. I was kind of impressed by that because I haven't you know, sat down and watched this in years. I mean, the last time I probably watched it in its entirety was when I was a kid. And I, I'm expecting you know to watch it at however the hell old I am now and, and seeing all these glaring holes and like how dated everything is, but no, it's actually, it's, it's so well done. And it has that certain, it has that recipe of just enough camp to where you don't need to take it too seriously. And you know that you're having fun with it, that uh, it get, kind of gets a pass, you know, it's, it's not taking itself too seriously. So it doesn't seem to get uh, aged in that way. Uh, but Prof CJ, um, I consider you as a, as a historian, almost an archeologist of history, and so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, have you on for this one. And also it's the 40 year anniversary. So I thought it was a timely time to, to do this and uh, wondering what your take is uh, related to this film and anything that Robert has brought up so far. Well, I, I love it too. Um, I just rewatched it earlier today for the first time in probably just a couple of years. Cause I rewatch I rewatch these movies every few years. Um, I had the Indiana Jones movies on VHS growing up as a kid. I watched them a zillion times and I watched it today. My full set DVD that I've had since 2003. I pulled oh, it wow. out. And, yeah. So Thank that's you. how much of a fan I am. And uh, yeah, it's iconic. Uh, I also hate the crystal skull. The, the fourth disc here is bonus material for the three real movies of Indiana Jones. Um, the crystal skull. I, I prefer to not even talk about, and I'm, I'm absolutely uh, terrified and disgusted at the thought of, one more Indiana Jones movie because they're going to wreck it even more. I, I am worried, but it's iconic from the opening, right? Where the Paramount mountain turns into a real mountain. And then, you know, as soon as you see that silhouette with the hat, it's just boom. And Hollywood in, they used to be so good at making action movies and comedy movies and comedy movies with some action. Right. Mm -hmm. And if there's two kinds of movies they used to be pretty good at making that they've completely forgotten how to make, it's comedies and action movies in, in recent years. And so it's nice to watch something from back when Hollywood knew how to make a good action movie or a good comedy movie. 
and it's a it's a perfect blend. I mean, it doesn't take itself too seriously. He's a he's a cool guy and a hero, but he's not perfect. He's you know he screws up. He makes mistakes. He gets in over his head. He's got some weaknesses. He's got, of course, his famous phobia of snakes. So, you know, that's what makes for a, a great action hero is somebody who is a little bit vulnerable, who you feel like, well, this guy is a little bit in over his head. And yeah, he can, you know, do some cool stuff and he can fight and whatever, but he's he's not Superman. He's not easily like in modern movies with, you know, really fake fight choreography and CGI everything and whatever, where there's like tensionless action and you really don't feel at all like anything real is happening, right? You go back and look at this thing. It's all practical effects that all still look real. The only effect in the whole movie that I thought, you know, looked not great and dated is at the end when the arc, you know, does its thing. Um, and that, you know, if they did that today, they'd do it all CGI and they would probably way, way, way overdo it. So, you know, at least in, since they didn't have CGI back then, they had to keep that part a little bit more restrained than they would today. Um, but it's a great movie. It's a fun movie. It, it's a movie like the last one I, I talked about with you guys about a year ago. Um, it's another one where it actually makes sense for Nazis to be bad guys. You know, so often Nazis are made the bad guys in Hollywood movies and it's just lazy writing. It's just like, we need a villain. Well, let's make him a Nazi or a neo-Nazi or whatever. Um, but at least it makes sense if you're in the mid thirties. Um, I will say just randomly one historical thing that bothered me. And obviously I realized like it's a, you know, kind of a fantasy movie and whatever. One historical thing that actually of all things kind of um, uh, irked me a little bit when I, when I thought about it was that in the movie, it's 1936 and the Nazis are running an archeological dig in Egypt. That wouldn't have happened because in 1936, Egypt was still under the control of the British Empire. And they definitely would have let Nazis go in and start digging around in Egypt in 1936. That was that was the only part of the movie of all things where I was like, oh, that broke the that that broke the uh, the illusion for me. But anyway, it's a it's a great movie. Yeah, that's one of the challenges of knowing too much, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm always the worst person to watch anything historical, even if it's historical fantasy or whatever, because I'll be like, yeah, okay, I'm cool. There's ghosts. Fine. I'll, I'll accept that for the sake of the movie that there's ghosts or there's magical stuff going on or whatever. But like, you know, this country over here didn't wasn't called that at that time period or, you know, this empire wasn't over there back then. So, right. yeah, I'm, I'm the right. worst. That didn't even exist. And yeah, it's it's like watching ER with a doctor sitting next to you, right? He's just going to be constantly like, they wouldn't do that. That's BS. That's made up. That's fake. So. Yeah. Uh, Robert, you mentioned Chris Pratt and he's in some, some movie on Amazon. I forget what it's called. Maybe tomorrow war or something like that. And uh, Jack Lloyd, our friend from the voluntarist, uh, he had a great post about uh, the, the firearm that the Chris Pratt character has in the tomorrow war. And it's like, it's a dialogue of him going to a gun store and saying what kind of thing he needs. And it's like, okay, uh, it's these really massive aliens. So I'm going to need like this, uh, scope on it so i can like pinpoint accurately shoot them from 10 feet away <laughs> and, you know it, it's like he he needs a uh, penetrating uh penetrating rounds so well the only thing we have is like five five six or whatever so he's like all right well then you're gonna want a like super long barrel to get as much velocity behind it as possible it's like no no i need a super short barrel and it just like narrows it down to like just the totally worst possible gun and that's of course the one that they use in the movie and I do that too, because I'm a gun guy too. But um, I have to say in this movie, Indy's gun is perfect. He's got a Smith and Wesson model 1917, which is a revolver in 45 automatic caliber, the same caliber as a 1911. And that's actually a perfect gun for him to have because that was a GI uh, issue gun in World War One. Because in World War One, they couldn't produce enough 1911 automatics for all the soldiers. And so they also got some uh, revolvers made in 45 caliber from Smith 
and Wesson and Colt as well. So e even as a gun guy, I'm watching it. I'm like, that's the perfect gun for him to have. That makes total sense. Okay. Yeah. And the action is choreographed in the way that he's not just endlessly shooting round after round, after round, after round, after round, after round, after round, after round. You know, it's, it's not like your typical eighties. We're going to unload thousands of rounds into whatever it's choreographed in the way that no a gun with that. I mean, a revolver with a decent sized barrel, you can, you can actually hit something at a distance pretty good. And then the, 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 the Jackie Channess is allowed to come in with all the using the environment to beat up the enemy. It's, it's, it makes for a much more entertaining, varied experience as opposed to a lot of the more lazy writing that you see in later movies. And I'll say one of my favorite little just snippets in the movie ever since I was a little kid watching it is the classic scene where the guy comes out with a sword and he's doing mm -hmm. all the fancy, you know, ah, 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 and then Indiana Jones just like kind of smirks and just calmly, boom, you know, just takes him out with one shot and then just walks away. It's like, yep, 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 yep. That guy brought a sword to a gunfight. Yeah. No, yeah. I and think isn't that there a story? That he was actually feeling pretty ill that day, and he couldn't do all the the stunt that he was supposed to do. That it was actually supposed to be a sword fight, but he couldn't do it. Oh wow, I didn't even know that one. Yeah, I heard the same thing. I don't know if it's like a a rumor or if it's actually true, but yeah, apparently he was feeling ill, and so he just all right. Well, all I can really do is just shoot shoot him, and uh, it becomes like this serendipitous thing that makes the scene iconic and works so well. And there's so many like set piece iconic things in this movie that you almost don't care that it has those like teleportations that you were talking about earlier. Like we just care that he's like there at the, you know, the swapping the idol and the boulders chasing him. Uh, and and I don't know, in, in watching it, you're like kind of like, oh, well, if the boulder was going to come out, why didn't he just like wait? <laughs> you know, because like he gets right in front of it before it rolls down that ramp. But it's, you know, it's it's still fun. It's uh it's a it's a well done movie that that you know that they had these ideas in mind that they were like all right well we got to have this happen and we got to have this set piece we got to have this set piece and then we kind of have to connect them uh, together a little bit um, and it, it works yeah and this is also a film that has inspired new generations of filmmakers and I don't know these are probably people that are already working or have been working for some time since this is forty years old but there are all kinds of fan films made with eight year olds ten year olds. Teen young teenagers reenacting Indiana Jones scenes or making their own little Indiana Jones movies. This is a this is the kind of fun you have a you have an everyman hero, and you you know a young kid feels like yeah, I could be him. It's it's way different than say like the Marvel movies or like a John Wick character where he's like this sort of unstoppable Terminator guy. You know it's. It's much more, even though he is an iconic character and he's got a great amount of character, he's not some superhero. You feel like you could be him. And that's the, the, the beauty of this, this, this movie. And, and there is the scene in, you know, near the beginning where he's doing his professor thing and he's got his little bow tie on and whatever. And, you know, that kind of humanizes him in a way. It's sort of like when Superman is Clark Kent and he's like, oh, he's actually kind of dorky, you know, uh, even though he's got the groupies and everything, which, you know. I guess you go into archaeology for the same reason you go into history. It's primarily for the groupies. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's for the ladies. It's for the ladies. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Ironically enough, that's that's why I went into the uh, degree I did in college, is because it's where the the cute chicks were. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't uh, have as much luck as uh, as Indiana Jones did. 
uh, with the, the girl with I love you over her eyes. That was mm -hmm. a nice touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been teaching for, I don't want to think about close to 15 years, and I've never had that happen yet. So still waiting like for it. You say yet. I appreciate it. That's the spirit. So I guess the question is, have you worn your Jack Burton shirt to teach? Because I think that, that might do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's probably it. That's probably it. I haven't. <laughs> All right. Well, so you, you, know, reflexes. You, you come to us for, for, <laughs> for ladies advice. Um, so one thing I wanted to bring up is this concept of looking at something historical, you know, 40 years old from today's perspective and what we could consider now as problematic. And I, I saw some stories that, and I don't know if this is Google serving it to me because I was researching the film and, and making, um, plans with UCJ to like do this episode, but they, they, you know, they, they know your search history and whatnot, and they start showing you stories related to it. Um, so I started seeing like all these things about Harrison Ford shooting episode or season five or whatever you call it, uh, the fifth movie and his injury to shoulder, but then also stories about how uh, the Marion character uh, it's problematic now that some of the dialogue of her speaking to him at the uh, Nepalese bar is about how she was young and that he took advantage of her and they're like equating it to did he potentially you know do do like something that is uh frowned upon you know like was she underage or did he force himself on her things like that and people are reading that into the dialogue and so i saw those stories and before watching this movie again and i tried to like put my mind into okay what are they seeing here and i watched it and i'm like no it's very obvious that he was the student of her dad and that he got involved with her and they were both young and he wasn't ready to, you know, be in a long-term relationship. And so it kind of, it fell apart, but they see this like victim kind of story where, you know, there's this potential for it to be an underage and a nefarious thing. And Indiana Jones is a bad guy. Um, have you guys heard about this at all? And, and do you, can you see like that perspective or does it make sense to you? I'll go to Robert first. Uh, I think, I guess if you're not paying close attention to the dialogue, sure. Uh, or if you're, if you're interpreting it uncharitably, like the, 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 the dialogue is vague enough that they could be alluding to a grape scene, but I think you're probably more on the nose with your take that they were, they were both young. They had some kind of relationship, but you know, this is Indiana Jones you're talking about. He's he's got you know all kinds of these ladies chasing after him, and he's got this passion for archaeology of all things. And in the world in which he exists, archaeology is super cool. I mean, he's got relics like this exist in the world still that aren't already snatched up and in museums, even though. In most, I mean, okay, there are, still are some relics in the world, and they are still hidden in some tombs, undoubtedly. But you, you really don't. I don't think you see like these traps and these uh, puzzles to get at these treasures. Uh, most of the treasures that have actually already that exist in museums have been there because grave robbers have already stolen them long, long ago, and they were passed down to different wealthy families or whatever. It's been in somebody's family for generations. And then eventually it winds up in some museum or it's just openly taken out of some tomb and then sold to like the British Museum or whatever. 
but I, I, so I don't think that the an actual archaeology is spent, you know, fighting Nazis and solving puzzles and that kind of thing. As much as I want it to be, you don't get to solve tons of puzzles to figure out where, you know, the throne room is buried or whatever. It's more about what uh, seismology and figuring out where there are empty spaces in the ground and where to dig and that kind of thing. I mean, there's some cool things about it, but I don't think it's as action packed as, as the movies played out to be. It's more like uh, digging up dinosaur bones. You know, you're just out in the desert with a little brush and <laughs> shovel. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an archaeologist, but I just imagine it's not as cool as it's all played out to be. Well, uh, if you want me to chime in on the, the Marion thing first, I read somewhere when I was reading around in the past couple of days that they were saying like, well, Indiana Jones was 10 years older than Marion. And so when they would have had whatever affair they had or whatever, she was only like 16 and he was like 26. And I'm not sure where they got those specific ages from because the movie doesn't mention anything about either of their ages, either at the time of the film or at the time of whatever affair they had, nor does it specify exactly how far apart they are. Like it leaves it very vague. So I don't know if there's actually any real basis for those claims of, of ages and whatever, if there was like an early draft for the script where it was really specified or something. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, also this is in the mid 1930s. There's still, as far as I know, there's still States today in the U S where the age of, of consent is like 15 or 16. And I would imagine in the 1930s, it was probably lower than that in some places. So, you know, I mean, I'm not necessarily comfortable with like a 15 year old hooking up with a 25 year old that that definitely raises some issues and whatever. I, and I definitely wouldn't wouldn't be cool with my daughter in that situation. But at the same time, a they don't specify the ages in the movie and b in the 30s things would have been a bit different as far as people's standards and expectations and whatever. And it's also interesting too, that when she says something like, Oh, I was young and in love, you were taking advantage of me kind of his response is you knew what you were doing, which is interesting because you could make like almost a sex positive feminist argument and go, he's giving her agency in a way, you know, he's kind of saying it takes two to tango. Now you could still debate back and forth, you know, does, does a, if she was 15 or 16 or whatever, do they really have, the wherewithal should the age of consent be hard that but that's a whole different you know i don't know to me within the context of the movie it's 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 very i, I don't know it's, it's very kind of vague and within the context of the time period it's a little bit murky um on the question of archaeology and all that yeah my understanding is and i've i've read like some serious archaeology like academic books of various types for some of the stuff i've done when i'm dealing with like you know ancient history in different places and it seems like a lot of what archaeologists do is like really boring stuff like sitting around looking at a, at a small shard of pottery going, all right, is this from the fourth century or the fifth century of Crete, you know? And, but, but that said, if you go back late 19th, early 20th century, there were some archeologists. Now, some of them were, you know, amateur archeologists, not affiliated with, with any universities or whatever. Um, but there were some archeologists who, who kind of were a little bit adventuresome back in those days. There, there was a guy and I'm blanking on his name. There was a, a real American guy who supposedly Indiana Jones was partly inspired by um, an American who traveled to some pretty remote places in the early 20th century, especially like Mongolia and stuff, um, and was like, you know, maybe not getting into quite as many shootouts and fights or whatever, but was 
going into some dangerous places and maybe getting into some some scrapes with the natives and whatever. So, you know, that that kind of stuff was probably starting to be on the way out by the 30s, but it probably was still still happening some places around the edges. Well, let's talk about that. So what is he doing but going into these places where he doesn't have a claim to the land and robbing the tomb? Now, you could say that the owner of that tomb is long dead. All the people that built it are long, long dead. But it's certainly, I mean, I, I guess it, you could say that he's recovering it or finders keepers, losers weepers. Um, in a stateless society, uh, I would say all the land would be privatized and somebody would have a claim to that land already. Usually that land is claimed either by like a church or a state. And, you know, I, I, I count like state claims on land as super duper not valid. So um, I don't know. What are, you, what are your guys thoughts on what his job is? And, you know, he, he's going to take whatever he finds and sell it to like the British Museum or what ends up happening with the Ark. And it gets taken by like the U.S. government and thrown in some warehouse somewhere. Which, to be fair, he did not want to have that happen. He he did want to have it in a museum to be studied or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, right. But yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a there's a real clear answer here. Number one for for what you said, which is we don't know who actually owns the land on which these things are located. Right in the in the movie anyway, it's not spelled out. Like, is this public land or does someone own it? And if someone owns it, like, did they get it legitimately, or is it you know some land that some rich guy in Latin America, like in the beginning of the movie, got just because his dad was a conquistador, or his you know ancestor was a conquistador, um, and that's you know kind of questionable the the righteousness of that claim. Um, so yeah, without without knowing who actually owns whatever land he's finding these things on, it's hard to make like a libertarian you know argument of like, oh, clearly this belongs to this person. Um, and then when, you know, when it comes to like, if you zoom out to the level of, of nations and states and go, you know, is it right, for example, that, um, so many, just, just to take one example, so many ancient Egyptian artifacts did end up in the British museum. It's like, on the one hand, you definitely can look at it and go, yeah, there's something that seems a bit off there that these, you know, the, the ancestors of the people who created these artifacts don't end up having them and getting the benefit of having them in their museums to get tourist dollars or whatever. On the other hand, you could say, well, and, and this is the argument that people who are a little, little bit more of apologists for imperialism than I'm comfortable with uh, being might say, and they, they kind of do have a point. It's, it's complicated where you could say, look, if these things were left in, you know, a somewhat unstable, chaotic uh, part of the world where they originally were, would they have even survived intact, right? Would grave robbers not have long ago carted them off? Would they have been destroyed as, you know, wars, for example, ravaged North Africa during World War II? Um, so in other words, all those Egyptian artifacts in the British Museum, would they even still exist if they hadn't been, you know, carted off um, as part of the white man's burden? Because, yeah, you can go to the British Museum today. I've, I've been there, you know, like 20 years ago or whatever. But like, yeah, you can see all these things. Like, they're there, you know, um, and they might not be available to even look at had they not been dug up and carted off to a place where they were kept safe. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very tricky uh, question. I don't, I don't think there's a very clear cut answer. Right. It certainly seems preferable to what's been happening. Uh, like with the Iraq wars. Um, I, I understand that a lot of the historical sites were bombed and, and destroyed and uh, the museums there were looted. Yeah. Yeah. 
that that's a that's a great um you know modern example and also things like um the taliban in afghanistan famously were like blowing up these ancient buddhist shrines and temples and it's like you know if it was possible to teleport those things to some museum in europe uh or or north america or whatever might that not be preferable to having them just destroyed and lost forever right and in, in another regard uh speaking of the property rights i mean if these are in the jungle and essentially abandoned property uh that have not been homesteaded then is it not like robert was saying earlier the finders keepers kind of thing like they're the first person to rediscover it and and do anything uh put put forth any you know mixing of the labor with the land uh so in essence you almost have a homesteading argument for the grave robber right now in the beginning of the film belloc does have like a group of what tribesmen like who appear to be super upset about Indiana's presence in the area. So maybe they have homesteaded this area, but it, it seemed to be that they were kind of doing his bidding. Like he learned their language and told them some terrible story about Indiana or something. Yeah. Well, he it didn't was seem like they had them. a real, right. Yeah. It didn't seem like they had a real, like, Hey, that's our tomb. You're rating there. Mr. Tomb Raider guy. Yeah, they, they might have been, you know, from a somewhat different area and not even, you know, seen that temple as part of their tribe's land or however they would have seen it. But, you know, the, the film's so fast paced and lighthearted and whatever that like, you know, it's probably fine for the sake of the movie that they didn't get into all these details. Like, you know, this temple is located on these guys' <laughs> tribal land. And, uh, let's, and, and then pretty soon you're turning into the Phantom Menace where like you're spending the whole movie talking about trade disputes. And, you know, we're like, hey, get to the lightsabers. Right. That's right. But, uh, you know, one thing about that opening scene, and it is, it is a great way to open a film, um, but that idol is like forgotten after that. Like we don't we, we that never gets resolved uh, in, in any of that um, DVD set. Do they even talk about that idol again? Um, I don't think so. No, I think it's it's like a it's like a, an opening MacGuffin. And then you get to the, the real MacGuffin of the movie, which is the arc. But that's like that's like an initial MacGuffin, like an act not even act one, but like scene one of act one MacGuffin just to get the ball rolling and introduce the character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with, um, uh, uh, temple of doom with the, the Chinese artifact or whatever that, that he's trying to get at the beginning of temple of doom when he's in Shanghai. Uh, same thing where I, I don't, I don't even remember. I didn't watch temple of doom today. I didn't have time. Um, and I haven't watched that one in a couple of years probably, but same deal where, you know, who knows? It's, it's kind of just introducing us into this environment, into this, yeah. like, general idea of here's what this guy does I, yeah i think we're supposed to just sort of think that like he's doing this sort of thing all the time so you know it's only the rare artifact that really stands out like the ark of the covenant or the holy grail in last crusade that like is is an exception that these kind of less famous um less desired but still somewhat valuable artifacts are just like his his sort of you know daily bread and butter nuts and bolts type stuff okay all right now robert do you know if um did we do a movie recently where the Ark of the Covenant was utilized as a weapon of war or spoke about as one? Was that perhaps in um, Kingdom of Heaven? Or am I am I mixing up in my head uh, watching Ancient Aliens with my wife where they were talking <laughs> about the Ark potentially being like a communication device with aliens uh, and utilizing the pyramids as antenna and all this stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was not in... Um kingdom of heaven with uh 
Legolas. No, I don't. I don't think that. Well, was I thought there. there was something where they like thought that they had some invincible artifact that they were bringing into battle, and so they didn't care about bringing water or food, and they got routed by Saladin. Uh, that uh, I think they didn't bring water because they were the holy knights, and yeah, they didn't. Yeah, they had some sort of. You're okay. You're right that they had some belief that they didn't need water. I remember that at the very end. Or they wouldn't need it to beat Saladin, but I don't remember what, if if anything, that they actually had. Okay. Or was it the it art? Like maybe part maybe of the cross, you're right maybe? about this. Maybe you're right about this. I just don't remember. I think maybe they had part of the cross that, that Jesus was crucified on or something like that. It's it's all fuzzy, you know, in my old head. Things uh, go in and then they spill out. But no, you're talking about the power of belief and the power of these holy relics. And that's definitely a thing. Uh, I know a lot of different churches in Europe, especially, have like a little chunk of a saint. They have their little relic that you know brings in followers to come and see and go on pilgrimages and that kind of thing. Um, I could see it being used at the head of a, a, a holy crusade or anything like that to to either recover or to use in your war effort to show that God is on your side, that we're going to defeat the heathens with the power of the Lord through this magical object. Uh, I think it's a fun kind of mythological thing. I know that Christians don't generally enjoy thinking of their holy relics as magical objects, but that's generally, and they kind of fit in the same category. So, I mean, either they have power or are they just objects of focusing your belief? I, 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 I tend to think, I, from an outsider's perspective, uh, a holy item, an object, is like the same thing as like any other kind of MacGuffin type thing, like any kind of a occult thing that has power. You know, it has some kind of connection to a higher power or it in itself has some sort of a power and the holder of it is able to use it and wield it in some way. And in reality, you know, if you have a holy relic and you say, Hey, this was the head of John the Baptist, come check it out. That's going to bring in people and they'll give you more money. So it does kind of have some sort of power. But anyway, I, I could piss off Christians all day, but I, I love <laughs> Christians. So I'll choose not to. All right, so that was Robert's cynical minute. <laughs> I guess. I mean, am I wrong about any of that? I don't know. Maybe. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, definitely in medieval times, Christians were more um, more focused on objects and more focused on locations than Christians are today in general, right? Where medieval Christians like really believed if you went on a pilgrimage to a holy site, you were like closer to God in a, in a very visceral sense. And the same thing with holy relics, you know, with the bones of a saint or a alleged piece of the true cross, like they really believed that these had special powers and you can find, um, you know, wars and battles where, where maybe the outcome uh, was in part influenced by people's belief in an item. So, um, for example, one of the things that supposedly boosted the morale of the Normans before the Battle of Hastings was that William the Conqueror, before he went to go conquer England, he got the Pope to officially bless and legitimize his invasion of England. 
And then when he gets to the Battle of Hastings, one of the things that he had with him was a papal banner. And then, like everybody on both sides of that battle knew what that meant and understood what that meant. And so, you know, there's no way to measure it. But for sure, even just having the papal banner is, is showing both sides. Hey, the top guy with the, the hotline to God is on the side of this side. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Williams guys would have seen that and been like, God's on our side. And, you know, certainly any on the other side, on the Saxon side, if they were, you know, devout, would have seen that. And at the very least, it would have given them second thoughts and made them like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, um, if are we going to lose this battle because God's on their side? And also, if I die fighting against the Pope's banner, where do I end up? You know, and that might make it make a little difference to morale, and that might actually influence the battle a little bit. Right. Yeah. In a way, it just manifests a power by its very nature of what it's being used as, right? It doesn't necessarily have to have any inherent power, but the belief in it having significance, it's like a head game almost. It, like, it's a placebo effect. Yeah. It's a pl- yeah, if you're looking at it from a skeptical point of view, which I would too, you know, it's like, yeah, there, there's a placebo effect. And the placebo effect is real, even if the placebo is nothing, you know, but if, if enough people believe in it, it actually can have an effect. And, and morale to an army is huge, especially to medieval armies where you've got all these armored soldiers, like basically facing off with each other, standing toe to toe, swinging swords at each other. Uh, a, a lot of times medieval tactics centered around getting to the flanks and getting and pulling around and attacking them where they're vulnerable because actual medieval formations were built like big turtles. And you had like these phalanx formations where you're basically this big armored tank, very slow moving. And you got all these guys hacking with spears and swords. And a lot of the casualties only really happened when one side lost their morale and they broke and turned and ran and then they were ridden down by cavalry and stabbed in the back and shot with arrows and that kind of thing. But yeah, morale is everything to an army, but especially to a medieval army where you're, you're fairly okay. And you're, and you, you may eventually lose, but if you break and your morale breaks and you turn and start running and you're definitely it's over. And it's just, there's no stopping it. There's no like reforming up and, Coming back together, it's too late. You're already ridden down and chopped to pieces. Yeah, and at the Battle of Hastings, and I, I just bring this up because it's probably the medieval battle I've studied the most, the Saxons were on the high ground. They were on top of a hill, and they were in like a phalanx-type formation, and the Normans were were charging uphill at them. So everything in the world would tell you, and, and the Saxons are fighting on their home ground, defending their homeland from invasion, and they're on the high ground. And every rational thing would tell you like, oh yeah, they ought to win. But ultimately, they lose. I mean, it's a hell of a fight. The Normans make a whole bunch of charges that don't work um, and then finally manage to break through. But, you know, that that definitely shows you that that battle, at least morale was one of the key things that um, caused it to turn out the way it did. Yeah, I can imagine all believing in the same thing, all believing that God's on your side, especially since a lot of medieval armies. I mean, sometimes you had a fairly tight knit group, but a lot of times you've got guys that have never, I mean, speak like 20 different languages. You got armies that are composed of mercenary groups from, mm-hmm. you know, you have Barbary Corsairs fighting next to Vikings, fighting next to, I mean, guys that just couldn't communicate with each other at all, didn't give a shit about anybody else except the good little band that you're with, right? Like you, like one king will hire like 20 different mercenary bands and then he's got his own group of knights and whatnots. But getting all those people to fight together into one cohesive mass that all believe that they're going to win 
uh, it's surprising that, you know, more medieval battles didn't end in like just pure chaos, but. Right. This almost seems like a very necessary kind of concept to have to, to galvanize everybody into a common belief and working together towards a common goal. Uh, we talked about this with um, Godfather 2 and with uh, Havana, where the revolutionaries in Cuba, um, Michael Corleone, saw that these people were willing to die for their cause. They had true belief in what they were doing versus kind of this, you know, crony uh, U.S. puppet regime that was supported uh, that was resisting this. And so he could see the writing on the wall. I mean, it's all, you know, it's a fictional take on it. But but basically that that belief allows those that are more convicted to uh to overcome like numerical odds that would be seen as against their favor sort of like what you were talking about earlier cj with the battle of hastings where they're you know by all tactitional you know strategic and whatever awareness you would say okay these guys have the advantage and yet something allowed the other side to overcome absolutely all right. Yeah, there's all so, kinds of things about this movie that are fun to talk about. Yeah, and so uh, oddly enough, we got a comment uh, on a YouTube video on one of our episodes that was like, hey, these guys actually, you know, it's like an hour and a half episode and they only review the movie for like 20 minutes. The rest of it is they're just rambling on about just random stuff. We're doing it again, but that's fine. It's what we do. If, if people are familiar with it, that's what they come back for. So thank you, our audience, for <laughs> sticking with us through this. Now, um, I wanted to close out um, the... Uh, the first problematic thing, which was that Marion and, and the underage potential thing or that perspective on it. Um, while you guys were talking, I looked up uh, the actors who played Marion. She was actually born in uh, 1951 and this movie came out in 81. So she was in her late 20s when this film was was being made. And Harrison Ford is nine years older. So in my head, it still works like she was maybe 1920 when Harrison Ford's character is the student of her father and then they get romantically involved everything's on the up and up and like you said i mean it's 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 a bunch of snowflakes looking for things to be outraged by i mean yeah yeah well let me just give you one just insane example of of that that's even more like crazy um somebody i came across some review from like a you know a woke perspective pointing out all the problematic things about the movie and uh, this one person one of the things she said was you know after things that are a little bit more obvious like oh he's a white guy going into you know these these non-white countries and stealing their artifacts like okay that's that's you know it's not not completely uh without base then she threw in also Indiana Jones's first name is Indiana, which is a U.S. state that was named in honor of conquering the Native Americans. And I'm like, wait a minute. I've watched the bonus DVD. Okay. <laughs> George Lucas tells you why he named the character Indiana Jones. He named it after his Malamute that he had at the time, his dog which he said is also the dog that inspired the character of Chewbacca. And that's, by the way, why in the later films, they actually, I think in Last Crusade, they actually have Sean Connery say, yeah, he took that nickname from the dog, you know, because his name's really Henry. And so it's like, I don't think George Lucas was sitting down going, yes, let's name him Indiana, because that's the most colonial name in the American states. You know, it's like, that was the name of his dog. And I doubt he named his dog in order to make some sort of like white power statement. <laughs> Dog whistle, yeah, literal, literal dog really whistle. digging up, digging up ways and reaching, stretching oh, as far as they oh, can to get outraged they're, they're, about something. They're a thousand times beyond Alex Jones as far as connecting dots that don't connect. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, now I didn't see anything uh, related to this other problematic one I wanted to bring up. And I, I use problematic in a jestful tone. Um, John Rhys Davies, who plays Gimli in The Lord of the Rings, he's Welsh. And yet he's playing a Middle Eastern man or Egyptian guy. Um, what's his name? Um, in this one, Salah. Uh, Salah, yeah. Uh, so similar to Robert Downey Jr. playing a blackface character in Tropic Thunder, which uh, he had a great response, I think, on Joe Rogan, where, hey, do you think you could make that movie today? And he was like, well, you could, but you'd have to deal with a lot of shit. <laughs> um, and I wonder if if people would freak out about somebody playing a Middle Eastern character now, or are they not as, um, I don't know, like a victim class or something like that? Well, I, I don't even know like how this all is supposed to work. Well, I will point out that actor has a track record of doing this sort of thing because he also played a dwarf. And as far as I know, in real life, he is, he's not a little person. So <laughs> outrageous. He, yeah. Yeah. So wait, and he also yeah, plays somebody whole... from another, uh, another entire universe, right? Like middle earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. This whole idea of representation is beyond out of control. The idea that actors can't act as other characters. It's I, I, I Robert I, De Niro. I, I, Robert De Niro starred in the Irishman. Okay. He's obviously Italian. So, you know, some, yeah, wasn't doesn't it, apply uh, there. yeah, I remember uh, when, um, who was it? The, the lady, Scarlett Johansson, when she got, she got called like white facing, what, when she played, um, ghost in the shell. Oh yeah. Cause yeah, she's not, not Asian. I, I don't have anything interesting to say. It's just, just more ridiculousness. The, the idea that an actor isn't supposed to act and pretend to be somebody else. It's all pretend. It's all they do. And if, right. if they do a good job, then you'll like it. And if they don't do a good job, then you'll hate it. What? Tom Hanks is not gay, but he was in Philadelphia. You know? And he's not retarded, but he is in Forrest Gump. Yeah. Uh, what was it? A uh, movie we did recently. Oh, The Birdcage with Hank Azaria. And and this is the kind of thing that that on this topic kind of bothers me is, is when somebody bows down to this caves to this kind of pressure, which Hank Azaria does related to the Simpsons and, and voicing um, non-white characters like Apu. And I, I think he did a bunch of different voices. Uh, but also yeah. in the birdcage, I mean, wouldn't they consider that problematic? Like he was so flamboyantly gay in, in that um, almost uh, in a caricature kind of sense where I think Robin Williams is like the more, you know, kind of, I think Robert, this was your point. Like he's the more believable like character. He's not like over the top. Um, Which is his usual way to play something is super over the top. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's actually Nathan Lane and Hank Azaria who are over the top in that movie. Yeah, but you know, are they are they now groveling and apologizing for performing? I mean, that's that's the thing that's like that gets me these days. It is it seems as if it's really hard to make a joke anymore or do something creative. Yet at the same time, the people who complain about those things are like all about expanding boundaries and pushing barriers in other areas. But just very selectively, it's it's a very bizarre kind of um, contradictory life view, I think. Getting upset with actors for acting. It's there's no area where they will not find outrage. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of acting, um, is Harrison Ford a good actor? Uh, I enjoy him. His cavalier, everyman kind of take. He's not perfect. He, he does some, you know, serendipitous stuff. But he's like basically the same guy in Star Wars, in, you know, like so many different movies. 
is it just him? Is is that just Harrison Ford being Harrison Ford, reading some lines, or is he a good actor? What's your take around? I, uh, you know, if you listen to interviews, he's all about the method of acting and the characters. He'll go on like a late night show, and he'll just talk about how much fun he had being this character and the the craft of acting, but it really doesn't come through in his on-screen characters from what I can see. He doesn't seem to pick roles where he totally transforms himself. He picks roles that are very much in line with who he is. And maybe that's part of, you know, half the Hollywood typecasting him, but he doesn't seem to, or isn't allowed to really flex his acting muscles if he in fact has them. He seems to talk a good game about being an actor, but I I tend to agree with you. I, I think he's competent and he's good at being himself for the most part. But is there a huge difference between Han Solo and Indiana Jones? Can you name it? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoy him I, and I enjoy many movies that he's been in. So I'm not like trying to say he's he's not a good that, that, that I dislike anything he's done. I'm just saying maybe he plays to his strengths and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The, the way I look at it is I think of it more in terms of like there are two kinds of actors. There's the actor that's the chameleon that completely different in any role like Daniel Day-Lewis or Ray Fiennes or something like that where like he, he, they're totally different people in each mm -hmm. role. And then there are actors who are kind of the same, but I still think they're good actors just in a different way. It's somebody like Harrison Ford or somebody maybe like Owen Wilson where – they're, they're, I still think they're a good actor. They're just, they're just good in a different way. In in the way that there are some bands that each song sounds totally different and it's great. And then there's other bands like ACDC comes to mind where yeah. a lot of the songs are pretty similar, but they're good. You know, so to me, it's like there's just two different kinds of two different kinds of things. There's the chameleon and then there's the kind of the same thing, but it's a good same thing. Yeah. 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 Just, yeah. Kind of yeah I, I can go along with that. I can go along with that. I The 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 guys that do the same thing are never going to get the props that a Daniel day Lewis will get. They're or not going to have the critics just raving over their performances, but they keep getting work. And that says something that they obviously have some kind of charisma or talent that allows them to work well with others and keeps audiences coming back to see their stuff. Yeah. To me, the key is just for an actor that's sort of the same in all their roles. It's just a matter of getting the right roles. Like as long as they get the roles that kind of fit what they do, it's great, you know, and, and then when they're badly miscast, it can, it can be kind of awkward, but you know, as long as they're pretty good about choosing the roles that work for them, then it's fine. Right. Like Kevin Costner in a romance movie. It just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Costner, Costner's another guy who's he's Kevin Costner pretty much no matter what. Uh, and I don't know if necessarily the roles that he's chosen were quite as successful as the types of roles that Harrison Ford has gravitated towards. Because Harrison Ford, I mean, there was a period of time where he was like the biggest guy around between Star oh, yeah. Wars, Indiana Jones. 80s um, and the 90s, he was crushing it. Yeah, Absolutely. Air Force One. Yeah, get off my plane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Jack Ryan. Uh, that was Jack Ryan, the Fugitive. right? Um, the Fugitive. The Fugitive. Fugitive, yep. Which, by the way, Fugitive, I thought that movie would hold up. I watched it like two years ago. Aged. Hmm. Not very really? good, unfortunately. Really? Yeah, it's, it's disappointing because I remember kind of being like, in awe of that movie when I first saw it and just thinking how great it was. But yeah, try watching it again. And it's like, Ugh. what's bad? Tommy Lee Jones. I don't know. Just kind of has that. Not quite a vintage feel, feel? But like an old feel. Yeah. Like, like it just, 
almost soap opera esque, where it's like so. The dimensionality of it is like kind of weird, you know, like where you can tell it's, 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 it's just not uh, that you're not transported to a time and a place. It's more just like, oh, I'm sort of watching a thing that's like almost a play. I don't know. It, it, it's really hard to articulate what I'm trying to say, but basically my take on it from a few years ago was that it did not age well. Whereas Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark aged extremely well, like a fine wine, really. Thank you very much. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that, uh, you know, Indiana Jones has his, like, nemesis in this film, but he's not really, I mean, he, he he's kind of, I don't know, would you, who would you say is the villain other than just Nazis? I mean, Belloc is kind of the villain, but... He's got some sympathetic motivations. Yeah, he's kind of a fellow traveler, just kind of a competitor for Indiana. He just has to sort of on the dark side of, of that. Like, yeah, he's he's just a little bit more even a little bit more lax in his morality than Indiana Jones is. So he's like, take right. him and then dial up the, the, you know, lack of morality a little bit more. You know, I can't see Indiana Jones knowingly working for Nazis. Right. So, you know, like he, he's willing to do some somewhat shady things, but he'll draw the line somewhere. Whereas Belloc is much more just kind of, you know, psychopathic. Although it's, it's funny because at this point, the Nazis their crimes the against humanities. Yeah. It hadn't come out yet. Really? I mean, you could probably argue, against their um uh what their 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 uh gosh what is it what is the thing that they did with their um forced sterilization and that kind of thing daniel when they would like kill like e eugenics eugenics thank you their eugenics program i think that was fairly well known although that was following the science at the time it was quite popular among some circles social circles yeah, and but, in the u.s they got it from the u.s didn't they yeah yeah they were big yeah, fans initially of the u.s they, uh, eugenics and they cranked it up a little bit but yeah. It's funny because at no point does Indiana, you know, hate the Nazis because they're Nazis. He's just, they're just an obstacle in his path to getting the Ark, right? He, He's he not does, like, you guys are evil. Does he? Is it he, at some point? I don't remember him doing that. Um, I think at some point he, he at least kind of acknowledges that they're bad, but definitely in the Last Crusade, which is supposed to be set a few years later he's much more like these are bad guys, which makes sense because a couple years later, the Nazis would have cranked up their badness more than in mm -hmm. 1936. So, I mean, in 1936, I'm not sure the exact timing of everything off the top of my head, but they were definitely already doing some, some, you know, bad stuff, but definitely not like full on, you know, death camps and all that stuff yet. Not, right. Not, Poland not for a few was more years. 39, right? So, I mean, this is a few yeah. years before the quote unquote kickoff to world war two. Yeah. Yeah. I think by 36, the main things, you know, Hitler had taken power, established himself as a dictator. Um, they had done some pretty serious things against Jews already, but nothing like what's to come. Um, and then Hitler had also, I think by 36, he had openly repudiated the the disarmament parts of the Treaty of Versailles and said, ah, we're going to build up our military. Screw you. And um, I think it was in 36 that the, the Nazis reoccupied the Rhineland, which was an area of Germany that was supposed to be uh, demilitarized after World War One. So but they, they had they, they had not yet Austria yet. No, that that happens in thirty eight, and then I think the Czechoslovakia thing happens later in thirty eight, and then Poland happens in thirty nine. And so, okay, yeah. they had they established the ghettos yet or no? That I'm not sure the the exact timing on when they did that. They they had okay. definitely already taken some some real actions against Jews as far as you know the Star of David and that kind of thing. Probably yeah, yeah, kicking them out of certain professions and you know, the, and there was disarming uh, them. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, like the Crystal Knox stuff, I'm not sure the, off the top of my head, I don't remember the exact year when Crystal Knox happened. Right. So, but, but to put a frame of reference on it, um, this was uh, the Olympic Games, right? 1936, hosted in Berlin. So they were still like in the international community in that regard. Yeah. 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 I mean, they were definitely, I think by 36, they were definitely kind of on the edge as far as like how, you know, Brits or Americans or whoever thought of them. They definitely were, I think, starting to become a little bit scary, a little bit villainous, but not, not to where they're going to be in a few years, which again, again, it makes sense that by last crusade, Indiana Jones would be a little bit more kind of clear cut. Like, yeah, these are, these are bad guys. Um, so I, I think it's in the conversation early on with Marcus Brody and the guys from army intelligence where, you know, they kind of say, Oh, an army that carries the Ark would be invincible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think any of Jones ever explicitly says like, and that would be evil and bad, but, but I think it's, it's kind of implied pretty heavily. Like everybody in that room definitely feels like that would not be a good outcome if, if the Nazis got the Ark. Right. Even though by 1936, they hadn't started world war two, they hadn't invaded Poland yet. But, yeah, although they, they had started rearming and re, they had reoccupied the Rhineland and, and they were definitely, you know, Hitler was making no secret. Ramping up the war machine. Of, of yeah, that he that he was, you know, going to try and regain all of Germany's lost stuff and then some by hook or by crook. And of course, you know, he had already written even as far back as in, um, in Mein Kampf, which he wrote in the, in the 20s, uh, long before he came to power, he had written about, you know, attacking uh, Eastern Europe and, and the Soviet Union for Lebensraum and all, the, all those sorts of things. So... You know, it, it would have been known, especially amongst fairly educated people and whatever at the time, that like, yeah, this guy's a little scary and seems to be kind of belligerent. Hmm. I wonder if in the Indiana Jones verse, if the atomic bomb would have been uh, attributed to the Ark being activated by the U.S. because they had acquired it from Raiders of the Lost Ark and put it into storage in that massive warehouse only to bust it out when necessary after years of conflict in World War II. A little fan fiction theory. Yeah, yeah. Hand it over to the Manhattan Project scientists and go, here, you figure out the science of this sacred supernatural thing. Yeah, that's fun. Why haven't they delved into that at all? That, that'd be good. I, I wanted to bring up one point. Um, I, I think it was from the episode of South Park that dealt with the Crystal Skull and all that. But I think it was in that episode of South Park that they made the point, and it, and it really makes sense, that at the end of the day, Indiana Jones and everything he does in the movie is completely irrelevant and superfluous to the outcome of the film because he ultimately completely fails to himself get the Ark back from the Nazis. Every time he he, he's about to get it, they get it back or whatever. And ultimately what saves the Ark from falling into the hands of the Nazis is the ultimate Deus Machina. It's like literally God wipes yeah. out the Nazis and prevents them from getting the thing. So every single thing Indiana Jones did, the entire movie, everybody he fought, everybody he killed, every crazy thing he did, all of his flying around the world with the map and whatever like that with the plane, which by the way is brilliant montage way to, to show travel is a little you know line mm-hmm. on the map. I, I love that. It's, it's so brilliant. But everything he does is completely superfluous to the outcome. So at the end of the day, you're left going like, nothing he did mattered. Right. It only matters because it entertained me for two hours. And that's cool. And it's fun. But it is kind of it is kind of sad to think about like yeah it didn't really matter like God would have wiped out the Nazis for getting the Ark yeah even if anyway. they had gotten it originally put it on that yeah. plane took it to Berlin <laughs> yeah yeah well the, the only difference the only the only difference that Indiana Jones made to the ultimate outcome of the film is it was because of Indiana Jones that the Ark ended up in a warehouse in D.C. or 
somewhere in, in America rather than, you know, sitting in the middle of the desert where the Nazis opened it or something like that. Right. That's the mm -hmm. only difference he made to the ultimate outcome of the story is if not for him, it might've just ended up sitting in the middle of the, des the desert somewhere or sitting in Berlin somewhere. Um, but it wouldn't have ended up in a, in a warehouse being looked at by top men. Right. Because it was Belloc's idea to go through, to have the, the Jewish ritual of opening it on this weird Island or whatever. And he, they had it in control the whole time. So yeah, I, that's that's a fun angle to take. I usually like my protagonist to be a little more affecting the plot, but or it didn't even bother me it, at it, all is, in this movie. Isn't it weird that that you you don't notice it until someone points it out, and then you're like, duh, you know, it's it's like right there. Um, but you know, I I I didn't figure it out for myself. If the South Park guys hadn't hit me over the head with it. I would have never even because I was so entertained by the movie and had so much fun with the movie. It never even occurred to me that, yeah, the protagonist doesn't matter. Right. But he, he is acting all the time. He just doesn't affect the plot, which is, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I do. He is constantly proactively doing things. It just, he just fails at it. And it's, it's okay. It's totally okay. Yeah, but even even as he like fumbles through certain things, you know, like he's overpowered by that big German brawler guy who gets chopped up by the airplane. Um, but he still does some pretty amazing shit like that, that truck scene where he's like hanging underneath and dragging along and then climbing back up. I mean, there's some pretty uh, high intensity like pro tagging going on there. Um, so he, he, he kind of has wins and losses, like hits and misses. And I guess that that's one thing that sort of makes him... Um, likable yeah absolutely he's super I mean, if, likable if, if there hadn't been literal divine intervention at the end the nazis would have won yeah because he was tied to a post <laughs> he mm -hmm. was yeah. at the mercy of the nazis so they open that thing it doesn't kill them they put two bullets in the head of marion in, in indiana and they walk off to berlin that's the other alternate version of the ending of the movie how it should have ended then, then they go on to conquer the world with the arc at the head of uh, the, the, the the Blitzkrieg. All right, I, I'm going to ask you guys one thing and see if this bothers you now that you've heard it versus before thinking about it. This uh, amulet, which is put into position when the sun rises over and it pinpoints the location in this city where the arc is. And yet when he escapes from this chamber where the arc is from all the snakes, he bursts out of an exposed and visible wall that some guy is sleeping next to. So you're telling me that this is a hidden thing. Then how come it's like this totally exposed and, and uh, you know, easy to find thing that they had already uncovered. Yeah, that bothered me. Uh, I mean, the idea that, I mean, maybe, maybe it's there, 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 it's in a constant, uh, you know, in the middle of excavating all this stuff. And there's all these things that they're excavating and they're uncovering all these buried buildings, maybe, but the way he just kind of pushes this block out easily and just climbs right out, uh, it, it bothered me a little bit, but ultimately it's just all in good fun. Yeah. I think you can get away with a lot of those sorts of things if the movie's fun enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing, same thing with the submarine. That bothered me this time. And I thought about that, you know, before when I've watched it, where it's like, that's a hell of a long way. How many days is he on that thing? And also, really, they're in a U-boat and they never once submerged the yeah. whole time. That seems right. kind of weird. Right. I just picture him like clinging to the outside of a U-boat that's hundreds of feet under the water for days at a time. And 
you know, yeah. Yeah, they are just going across the Mediterranean, which, you know, what is that, like a five, 600 mile journey to wherever they were going, like near the Bosphorus? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not huge, but I would imagine it probably would take, um, I, I don't know how fast those U-boats go, but it would probably take, I don't know, at least a matter of days, right? Yeah, I would what imagine at least a few days, at least a few days. I mean, he could probably survive it, but to just kind of wave it away as if it was nothing is a little on the insulting side, but no, whatever. It's all, it's all good fun. Yeah. So speaking of the amulet thing, I was totally prepared to like, be like, how would they know where the sun is exactly going to be at that time? But then in rewatching it, he actually does it two notches down from where the guys had put it in previously. So there, they must have built into the, the story and into the set that there was some sort of like each different day, at a certain time, you would put it in a different position. And so I appreciated that. Yeah. No, that's yeah, all it's, the good details. It's, it's not like the uh, the dagger in the Rise of Skywalker. Oh, <laughs> thing. It's like, really? How'd they notice it on the magical spot? And yeah. It's yeah, even yeah, worse than just... the thing on Goonies. Oh, yeah. We're going to do Goonies uh, this fall, Robert. I, I, I got it on the docket. That's All right. Exciting. Sounds good. Haven't seen that in a long time, but I remember having a good time. Like the first Josh Brolin appearance, as I think I recall. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. So we're getting to that point uh, where we are actually <laughs> super long already. So uh, I want to bring up any final notes before getting to final summary and review. And, and I don't even know what we can score this out of, like number of snakes out of 10, uh, something like that. Yeah. Okay. I can do that. So is it worth watching in 2021? Absolutely. It is one of the original Tridge. It's, I don't know if it's as good as Last Crusade. It's probably better. I don't know. I'd have to watch them all back to back to back. I know in Temple of Doom is kind of kind of generally considered to be the worst one. And I don't know where people stand on Crusade versus Raiders. But it's the one that started it all. It's the one that really inspired the um, Indiana Jones ride. Disneyland, which is what's my favorite thing at Disneyland. It's so much fun being in uh, one of those little, it's like a little Jeep and then it's just moving around so much. And then it's even got the rolling ball and everything. Just a ton of fun. If you're in Disneyland, go check it out. Um, but yeah, Raiders, it totally holds up. It doesn't have the world's greatest acting, but it doesn't need it. It's got a Cracker Jack of a plot. And it's got uh, just a whole lot of fun. It doesn't take itself seriously. It's got mm, iconic moments. It's got one of the first before it became done to death, probably. I mean, I don't know when they started using Nazis as the bad guys, probably in Casablanca. But, uh, you know, which is, I don't know, what was that back in the 30s? <laughs> Casablanca. But uh, it works really well here because they're not done like, it's basically a cartoon, but the, the the Nazis aren't just cartoonishly evil. Like they're not just like boiling children and cackling about it. They're after this arc and they have a soldier's duty to retrieve it. And, you know, they're basically just on the other side of the equation. So it's uh, they're good foils for for Jones and Belloc is a good foil for Jones. And uh, Marion's a good uh, romantic interest. It's not overdone. It's not underdone. It's just about right. There's even a scene where he's just so beat up and they're about to have sex, but he just falls asleep, which I particularly enjoyed because that happens, guys. 
That happens. You get tired. You, you're out a full day of punching Nazis and barely surviving and killing people. It, you're, you're too tired to have sex afterwards. So I appreciated that realism from Steven Spielberg in this realistic movie. So uh, I'm going to give this uh, eight and a half bullwhips out of 10. I thought it was fantastic. I would watch again. I will watch it again. I'll probably watch the whole trilogy again, which I have done in the past. And I do also have a box DVD set. I don't know if it's as fancy as uh, Pro CJ's, but it is uh, good. And uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. All right. So I, I love that you totally ignore that there was a, a, a continuation after the trilogy. That, that makes it even better. So, <laughs> Prof. CJ. There's a scene uh, in Crystal Skull where monkeys come down and defeat, like, the bad guys. Monkeys. Like, they have all of a sudden he has power over monkeys. Yeah, and Dang. isn't it like a, a UFO? That rises yeah, monkey, out of the... UFO, and he survives an atom bomb by getting in a refrigerator. Yeah, okay? I appreciate that one. Yeah, and they, they uh, crash a Jeep off a cliff into a river, and the Jeep just kind of goes with the, the river, and they're, and they're fine. And yeah. Yeah, it's and like the people who made Crystal Skull didn't even watch the original series. Like, mm -hmm. let's make him, let's make the world of Indiana Jones like magical somehow. I mean, I know that there's like the Ark of the Covenant, but uh, anyway, I'm going to stop. You go ahead, Daniel. Go ahead. All right. Well, I'll throw mine out there and then we'll save best for last, which is what my kids like to say. They like to save like uh, their favorite food item for the last thing that they eat, uh, which is kind of frustrating as a parent, but uh, also kind of cute and adorable. So we're going to say best for last. Prof. CJ, we'll get your number of uh, snakes on a plane uh, after my little take here. So Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, does it hold up? You're darn tootin' it holds up. It is, uh, it is a lot of fun. Steven Spielberg, probably at his peak powers, uh, Harrison Ford probably at his peak powers, and uh, it is just a romp that just it doesn't get boring at any point. It's the right length. Uh, they don't drag anything out. Um, everything is is there that is necessary, and they even sort of cut through to things that uh, don't necessarily need to be shown. Um, it's a it's just a lot of fun, and I think that uh, it, this is a movie that will stand the test of time. It already has lasted forty years and still looks great. And I think it'll go another 40 years and still look great. So I'm going to give it nine snakes in a, in a pit uh, with, the, uh, uh, with the Egyptian uh, staff amulet that pinpoints where the Ark is. And we'll go to you, Prof. CJ, for your score and final summary and review. Yeah, I, I would concur on the number of snakes. I'd also go with nine out of the trilogy, which as the, the Pope of Indiana Jones, I say that uh, Crystal Skull is not part of the canon. Um, out of the trilogy, I would say that Last Crusade is my favorite, and I think by most objective kind of standards, it's the best of the three. Um, Temple of Doom is the weakest of the three, but I still really like it and think it's really good. So that's, you know, I'm I'm not trying to I don't know, damn it, with faint praise. Um, I I think Last Crusade is an overall better movie, but I totally get that. Raiders of the Lost Ark was establishing the character and setting up, you know, what became a franchise. And it, it does a great job at all that. So, you know, a few little nitpicks and imperfections here and there. I'm, I'm not going to dwell on too much. Um, I love anything that has the pulp sort of feel to it, whether it's in a kind of a mystery genre or an action adventure genre or a sci-fi genre. I'm just a huge fan of classic pulp. And so, for that reason, I also love this movie. I love the, the 
the the real trilogy. Um, it's also the same reason I love the real Star Wars. So I love that George Lucas is doing what he does best in this, which is big picture coming up with a concept. George Lucas came up with the basic concept of Indiana Jones for the most part, but then thankfully he turned over writing the actual screenplay and doing the directing to other people, which, you know, you can just look at, at all the Star Wars stuff he did. And that's generally the best Star Wars is where he's the big picture visionary guy coming up with the basic idea. And then other people work out the details usually better than he could. So it's, it's sort of a perfect, you know, you got Lawrence Kasdan doing the screenplay, which is that that's what he's the best at. You know, he's not as good at, at directing when he directs uh, Spielberg again in his prime. Right. So um, yeah, it, it's lightning in a bottle in a lot of ways. And you know, the two sequels also very good. And like I said, I like last crusade even a little bit better. Sean Connery in that is just awesome as Indiana Jones's father. It was kind of his first role, I think where he wasn't like the leading man, tough guy sort of character. So it's cool to see him play more of a, you know, dorky kind of a character, but do it great. So. All right. Yeah. Very good take. And yeah, I, I, I agree. Specialization and, and finding your niche and, and finding symbiotic uh, relationships can help, uh, create a better product at the end. Um, yeah, you got to know what you're good at and what you're not so good at. Right, and then find complementary partners to work with. Uh, I, if I recall, um, I think Mike C, a uh, frequent guest on our show, he sent me in, uh, a video about Star Wars and how it was saved in the edit. So basically, George Lucas had shot a script and and his uh, first reel of it first, you know, presentation of it was the story was boring and it lacked a lot of, um, of the iconic kind of things on it. And his wife, and I think Steven Spielberg went and edited it and turned it into the iconic, beautiful film that, that it resulted in. Now fact check me on this, cause I might be wrong, but, I, um, I will find that and put it on the show notes page because I think it, it, it goes to your point of the specialization of people finding the thing that they're good at and finding other people who are good at certain aspects to create this, uh, beautiful product the end here which is the indiana jones trilogy yeah, yeah. look at the look at the star wars star wars prequels and it's like there's a lot of great big picture ideas there mm -hmm. but the execution is terrible because lucas controlled everything that time yeah and and the big picture he had to also bring up so much detail it gets so convoluted you know yeah. that arguing about trade routes for 20 minutes yeah yeah yeah, and there are fan edits of the 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 prequels that are much better to watch. Those can be they're out there to be found. Check them out. All right. Well, I I think that this was a, a really good episode. Prof CJ, thank you so much for coming on. And people can find your work at profcj.org or dangerousHistoryPodcast.com if I have the links correct, and we'll have them on the show notes page, of course. Yep, either one works. And yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, I hope you can stick around for a little bit longer because we do some Patreon bonus content, which we affectionately call Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Um, but before we get to that, Robert, next week, we're going to be going into even more camp, and that is uh, a stoner film, Half-Baked, starring Dave Chappelle with our buddy Jared Wall of Breaking Liberty. Uh, he's been on for Hotel Rwanda, Gold, uh, the Breaking Bad movie that, uh, I forget what it was called, El Camino, uh, among others. So um, he's a great guest and a... Uh, uh, a good buddy. So we're going to have him on for Half-Baked, which I think will be a bit of a change of pace next week. Indeed. Uh, I generally have an aversion to doing comedy films, but perhaps this movie will prove me wrong and give us plenty of good fodder with which to dissect. Um, 
I know weed is mostly generally accepted in the culture today. So it's not like any kind of taboo thing. And it's just kind of vestigially illegal on the federal level for the most part. Uh, in actual culture, as laws require, you know, actual human will to enforce, most people are basically just like, eh, it's just weed. So uh, to see a film kind of like The Birdcage, which was, you know, trying to normalize it at the time, watching it again in 2021, you're like, it's kind of conquered territory. We'll see if it's if it actually has any arguments to make or if it's just a, a, a laughing comedy where I don't even know if the funny is going to still be there or not. We'll see. But Dave Chappelle, I mean, obviously a comic genius. Uh, so uh, I don't remember. Is he the main character of the film? I don't recall. It's a bit ensemble, but yeah, he's, pre he's pretty main in it. All right. Yeah, well, we'll check it out. Yeah, I, I hope it holds up. Um, and and just uh, I, I saw a story today that uh, in California, the feds seized one point one one point one nine billion dollars worth of weed. So today in recent times, like the, the news article was from today. Uh, so it probably happened in the last week or so. So, I mean, these things are still happening while states have legalized these things. Even California, I believe, has legalized and in, in, the, in a sense, it's, you know, tax and regulate. But right, right, right. But I mean, you see the Facebook comments on those kind of things, though, and they're basically. Give those people the back through, their stuff. <laughs> yeah. Putting the feds through the ringer. They're like, this is nothing to be proud of. You violent thugs. Give him back his stuff. Right. But yeah, those things are, they are still kind of happening, uh, even in states that have quote unquote legalized. I use the quotes advisedly because in my view, it should be decriminalized in the respect that there is no law, there is no license, there's no permit required. But of course, I live in a fantasy, a utopian fantasy land of uh, voluntary interactions. Weirdo. I must be an extremist. So anyway, you've been on, you've been on the Facebook lately. I have been on the Facebook, getting lots of warnings, lots of warnings about all my friends and, and probably myself. They're getting warnings about me. I don't know if I got warnings from you, Prof. CJ, but, you know, probably because you've done, uh, what, eight episodes on Woodrow Wilson right now. And he's a patron saint of uh, the cathedral. So, yeah, yeah. And I've done all kinds of other stuff they wouldn't like anyway. So. All right. Well, we like it and we like you and we we appreciate you coming on and, and doing this with us. And uh, we appreciate our audience. So if you guys want to support what we do here, give us a subscribe on the YouTube, go to our uh, Patreon and spend some money. Send us dollars that way. And you get a pre-show pre bonus content and also the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is some post-show bonus content. And uh, I guess we can uh, wind it down there. So find the show notes and more at lastnerves.com slash 185. And we'll see you guys all next week for Half-Baked with Jared Wall of Breaking Liberty. And with that, we'll say goodnight from last night, everyone. Peace out.